0: John did I see you moving a snake with a stick? I said, uh, yeah. And she said, how did you know it wasn't a biter? And I said, it didn't look like a biter. Oh, my God. Well, you ain't got the sense he was born with. I get very tired of the trope that says two women in a book have to necessarily be in competition if they're roughly the same age and attractive. No, these women look out for each other, which is my experience of female friendship is that I couldn't live without my female friends. They're just, you know, they're the kind of scaffolding under everything that I do. There is a thing in the trade now called a sensitivity reader uh, where a lot of fiction is now... Uh, If you're writing about, say, race, uh, especially in the young adult market, which seems to be especially sensitive to these issues, there are people employed to do what's known as a sensitivity read to see whether there are any glaring errors.
1: Welcome to Best Sellers. I'm Natalie Jamieson.
2: I'm Phil Williams. And we've got a stonker of an episode for you today. And I've also realised Nat, that I've kind of set myself a bear trap by giving shout outs to countries where we've got very few listeners. why can't remember which ones we've done
1: (laughs) i can remember okay right
2: then have we done have we done taiwan no all right let's do today then we have two listeners in taiwan what up taiwan there we go (laughs) it's
1: a pretty good start i like it yeah
2: it is good what's really nice is so i should explain to you listening that we can, the, the people who host this pod for us, ACOS, give us a, a map of the world. And the map changes color when you've got listeners in different parts of the world. So we've got this really gorgeous, luminous map now on my computer because we're now, we're now going global. We are now. Well, it was worldwide. almost global, like, right? We've
1: had this conversation before. <laughs> Do I need to explain to you about how podcasts work again? Uh, well, no, because I think you're missing the point.
2: I know how podcasts work, but the point is that people have to exercise the option to, to subscribe
1: to It's all <laughs> yeah, a good saying it's
2: available all over the world. The map's showing lights going on all over the world. Now, that's my point. Yeah. People are it's actually cool. yeah, they, people are getting on board.
1: Yeah, it's good. Um, I like it.
2: Any other business before we get into Jojo Moyes?
1: Uh, there you go, it's Jojo Moyes this week, which is um, it's really exciting, and I'm not going to lie, I think I felt a little bit intimidated, because you know, you know her quite well, don't you? Yeah,
2: I've done live shows with her, and interviewed her on the radio a couple of times, so I've got a reasonably good relationship with her. <laughs> uh,
1: much like last week, we're being interrupted uh, again by a seven-year-old. All right, Elliot, what's happening? <laughs> what's going on? What do you need?
2: Can you explain the basics of podcasting <laughs> to Elliot?
0: <laughs>
1: what, what?
2: Speak up, we can't hear
1: you. Ever come in, come in, come in, you can speak it into the mic. What do you need? <laughs> stop. Ow, stop you or break it. I think it's the usual question about uh doesn't want to do French homework that he's been set versus wants to do something on a computer.
2: Yeah, I'm with him on that.
1: Okay, I'll I'll come help you in a second.
2: Okay. <laughs> <Je déteste les laughs>
1: <laughs> it was a it's a it's a French, this is like the kind of wind down to last couple of days of homeschooling. Um and it's a French paint by numbers and yeah. it's okay on colours, but some of the numbers, when they're written down, it looks weird, right? It doesn't doesn't look how it sounds. No. Yeah. Cattles, like, cows,
2: yeah. 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 yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. you put an X on that. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> you no, know, on that, right? I remember when I, and I was a lot older than Elliot, right? I was eleven. And my mom was quite good at French. So I would sit, and our French teacher had this strategy that he would only talk to us in French. He thought that was how we would learn. So I used to write things phonetically in my book. (laughs) And then I wonder why mom couldn't tell me what it was. And she went, Can you put the proper spelling? I said, Well, no, I don't know what it is. He's not writing it on the board, he's just saying it. Yeah. (laughs) So I remember writing, come on. Two pal, two. Go, come on, Mom. What does? That... You must know what that means. He's saying it every five minutes. Yeah, yeah. Does Elliot want to introduce um, the episode? Can he get like? And he's cool? No, I
1: think he's gone shy now. I think he's gone he's shy. Not going to come um, on air. No, no. He's, he's he's pretty cool though. Yeah. But yeah, maybe maybe the next one we'll warm up to it. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So it is Jojo Moyes and the book is The Giver of Stars and I absolutely love this one as you're about to hear.
2: Our guest today on Best Sellers has sold close to 40 million books, which is just remarkable. And when I tell you who it is, you'll realise that she needs no further introduction. We welcome Jojo Moyes. How are you doing in lockdown?
0: Uh, I'm good, thanks. How are you?
2: Yes, this feels a bit weird for me. I've got to be honest with you, because last time I met you, we were touring together. Yeah,
0: we were rammed with people. I mean, yeah, Yeah. uh, we were in various venues where there were just, yeah, hundreds and hundreds of people and now... uh, now we're in just a completely different world nine months later. I How weird is that? I
2: know. I know. I know. Oh,
0: touching strangers. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. You yeah. won't be signing any books at the moment. Yeah.
0: Well, no, remotely, I'm doing a lot of book plates, um, which isn't quite as much fun, but uh, what is that? safer. They're, they're just little stickers that you put in the front of a book with a signature on. So, you know, it's, it's the next step down to, you know, getting to sweatily press yourself against your favourite author. <laughs>
1: And how many of those can you sign in a day or do you do like stints of a couple of hours or something?
0: Yeah, my general thing is I can do 300 at a push and then I start to forget how to write my own name. It's like (laughs) that thing, if you say a word too many times, it ceases to mean anything. If you do your own signature too many times, it it stops working. And uh, you can always tell when my mind has started to wander because it just turns into complete illegible scribble, um, which which my autograph is anyway. (laughs) Anyway. Yeah.
2: Less an autograph, more a prescription. Yes,
0: exactly. So, oh, yeah, I'd have made a great doctor. That's a good yeah. point. Yeah.
2: So, the Giver of Stars is what we we're talking about. Uh, just the the most amazing yeah. book, um, and it's a paperback release. So, in the lifetime that the hardback has had,
0: yeah. what kind
2: of feedback have you had on this remarkable story?
0: Well, it's been amazing, and I have to say, it' a bit like me before you when I pitched this book. Uh, I would say, I, I can't say that my editors were thrilled with the prospect because I said, oh, it, it's a book about librarians on horseback in Depression-era Kentucky. And they <laughs> sort of did that. Oh, that that's um, niche. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then I had to sort of sell it to them and say, look, it's its not really about that at all. its It's a really modern story. It's about Um, solidarity it's about patriarchy it's about the rape of the land it's about politics and the importance of knowledge it's about the importance of books and then luckily because I've now done so many books with them they all trust me and so once I'd written it uh, I think they they got it but it's one of those ones that's quite hard to pitch you see people's eyes slightly glaze over because you've written so many books was there a sense do you think that
1: there was a concern that you were kind of going out of your usual box if you like and they were a bit like okay we'll let Jojo have this one she can do the kind of weird one and then we'll get her back on track (laughs) into what people
0: expect. Um, No because actually before I wrote Me Before You I wrote a really diverse bunch of titles I mean one of them set in occupied France in World War One, one of them is set in a whale watching community in New South Wales, Um, you know that they do tend to vary hugely but most people know me for the Me Before You trilogy, which is, of course, a very particular type of, of writing and a very particular modern day story. Um, so I think people who've been with me for a while, uh, been with my writing for a while, can just don't aren't thrown by it because they know that the usual elements yeah. will be in there. But this one is a very particular voice because it had to be uh written in a kind of Kentucky vernacular and I don't mean that to put people off but it it, there's a kind of musicality to the language out there which is really lovely and I don't think you could write about that region without hearing that voice all the way through the book
2: Mm. but again it's not you've not done what Irving Welsh does you don't write it in you know, incorrectly spelled vernacular. Do you? Yeah.
0: No, I find that quite hard to read. I think you either love that or yeah. you don't. And
2: I love it, but it yeah. takes me probably a chapter. Yes, exactly. So the brain has to click in, and also I'm, I'm then reading it like Begbie. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> and then yeah, and then you do it for the rest. Of, but uh, it's like the um, was the yeah, Alexander McCall Smith books where mm. uh, they're in a very particular sort of voice yeah, as well. They are. But those are the books that I can't read at all while I'm writing because if. Exactly as you say. Somehow that starts to kick in, and um, yeah, it would be it would be Mara Motswe's voice in a book about librarians in Kentucky. I can't do it. it just...
2: So I just want to make clear to people listening that Jojo doesn't do that with this. But you still get you still get the musicality of the the region, and the reason you get that is because despite all of your children and animals and friends and family. You hopped sticks and went to Kentucky. And can you describe where you went to stay to write this book? Where?
0: I, I stayed in a tiny cabin without Wi-Fi or telephone or um, TV or anything in a, in what they call a holler, um, a tiny kind of valley in between two mountain ranges, uh, five miles down a dirt track in a remote part of, of Kentucky near a place called Irvine. And and it was the best thing I ever did because when you speak to Kentuckians, they're a bit like the Irish in that they have a kind of inherent storytelling ability, but also that accent and also quite an old fashioned way of speaking. It, it dates back from the fact that so many families who moved to Appalachia were Scottish or Irish. So there's, but they went in Elizabethan times. So they, there is a kind of Elizabethan ornateness because of the cut-off nature of the region. Um, there's a flowery way to the way they speak and it's just lovely once you absorb it i just i knew i had to write with some of that voice running through it um and also you you know for me i'm a writer who's very sensory i need to smell the smells and eat the food and look at what plant life comes up and i had to be there for different seasons so that i knew you know these librarians were riding 120 miles a week through rough terrain so the weather and the seasons would have been absolutely key to their experiences and i i think for me one of the ways to drop a reader into a story is to really flood their senses with what that must have been like and that's my favorite bit really and also then you hear the great stories and then it takes your story off in another direction yeah
2: but it nearly took you in some other directions didn't it
0: it w- oh yeah
2: <laughs> in the in the cabin i mean you had some brushes didn't you
0: i i yeah well i got quite good at moving snakes mm. with sticks um and i, the, I have to admit, the first night that i stayed in this cabin i i'm a bit gung-ho i tend to do things before i realize all the 99 reasons why i shouldn't do them <laughs> and so i booked myself into this cabin and then realized it, how remote it was and it was night and i looked out into this mountain and there were just a, like a million trees and shadows and moving shadows. And I just thought, how many serial killers are out there? How many bears? What, what, what they're all going to come and get me? And should I turn the light up? And I'd sort of vowed that I would sleep all day and stay awake all night to keep myself safe. Also because the cabin doesn't have um, proper locks on the doors. Uh, And Barbara, the the proprietor would say, you don't need them. But, you know, I'm not used to curtain hooks being (laughs) the main barrier between me and the outside world. Uh, But then, fireflies descended and it was the whole of the mountainside was alive with fireflies because it's an area kind of untouched by pesticides and all the rest of it and it it was the most magical thing I'd ever seen and from that point
2: what did Barbara tell you off for
0: she oh so many things she told me off for (laughs) moving she saw me moving a snake with a stick and it got a bit angry um and I, I yeah, she'll kill me if I do her an imitation of it. She was like, Jojo Moyes did I see you moving a snake with a stick? <laughs> I said, uh, yeah. And she said, How did you know it wasn't a batter? And I said, It didn't look like a biter. Oh my god, well, you ain't got the sense you was born with. Um, she's this diminutive 70-year-old uh woman who is so tough and so wise and she absolutely embodies the women out there and she's now my kind of adoptive mum I just love her she's she's fierce um, but she doesn't care who she tells off and I also went went, whenever I went running in the woods because you you just feel very safe out there because literally there's nothing there Um, I would come back and she'd say you need to check for ticks because there's a lot of Lyme disease out there and I didn't want to disturb her. So I just washed my stuff in the shower and then laid it out on the grass to dry. And she said, did you lay your clothes out on the grass to dry? And I said, yeah. And she was like, you know what lives in the grass? Ticks. <laughs> <was> like, oh. <laughs> oh, oh my God. You know, I was just perennially disappointing Barbara with my big city stupid ways. Yeah,
1: But I think a lot of that, um, that warmth and that experience of being so close to the place that you're writing about comes across in your prose so well because the, the thing you were just describing them with the fireflies there's a gorgeous scene in the book where you oh, talk about the fireflies yeah. yeah and uh, i remember being in the states one time a long time ago now and seeing similarly fireflies for the first time and it's just remarkable
0: they're mind-blowing yeah. aren't they because you can't believe that this thing exists outside no. disney yeah I mean, it's, what is this real yeah um, and the worst thing is you can't capture them on a phone mm a phone camera it just comes out black and it, it was the most frustrating thing, because it was the best thing i'd ever seen in my life and you know of course we filter all experiences through our phones now and i couldn't get it there's just lots of footage of a black screen with me going is that showing up that, oh my god why isn't it showing up look <laughs> at that so you were there by yourself for
1: numerous trips was it then at different seasons Uh, i went
0: three i can't remember if i went three or four times now i definitely went three possibly four isn't that terrible i can't remember i did so much (laughs) traveling last year i slightly lost track but yeah i would go for a week each time talk to people drive around the areas i rode the routes on horseback that the man that the girls would have ridden because i want again i wanted to get that sense of what it was like and and it tells you things that you would never know otherwise for example In the mountains in the middle of the day, it's entirely silent. You don't hear birdsong. You know, at dawn, the place is alive with birdsong and rustling and noise. By midday, there's nothing. So when you're in this kind of huge mountainous woodland, Mm. it's just you and the horse. And it's it's quite a a strange shift if you're somebody who's grown up in a country as densely populated as, as Britain. It's quite strange to to be in that much space and that much silence, yeah.
2: Shall we hear some? Yeah. Let's have a passage from The Giver of Stars just okay. to give you a sense of, of what we're talking about here. And Where are we going to join this, this reading, Jojo? Just set us up.
0: Um, so our two main protagonists in the story are Alice, who is an English woman who has moved out to Kentucky. She thinks she's going to America with her new husband and going to have a lovely, glamorous life, and she ends up in kind of cowpoke town in the middle of nowhere um with a lot of i won't say they're suspicious of her but the 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 townspeople are are probably a little wary of strangers in the way that very small um non-fluid communities tend to be and this is also depression era america so it has its own issues Uh, but the first person she connects with is is the chief librarian a woman called marjorie o'hare and this is um the story of the early days of them embarking on the, the the traveling library together three days in bad family or not Alice had swiftly realized that she would rather be around Marjorie O'Hare than almost anyone else in Kentucky Marjorie didn't speak much she was utterly un- uninterested in the slivers of gossip failed or otherwise that seemed to fuel the woman at the endless teas and quilting sessions Alice had sat in on up to now She was uninterested in Alice's appearance, her thoughts, or her history. Marjorie went where she liked, said what she thought, hiding nothing behind the polite, courtly euphemisms that everyone else found so useful. Oh, is that the English fashion? How very interesting. And Mr. Van Cleve Jr. is happy for his wife to ride alone in the mountains, is he? Goodness. Well, perhaps you're persuading him of the English ways of doing things. How novel. Marjorie behaved. Alice realised with a jolt, like a man. This was such an extraordinary thought that she found herself studying the other woman at a distance, trying to work out how she had come to this astonishing state of liberation. But she wasn't yet brave enough, or perhaps still too English, to ask.
2: Very nice. And, and with added voices as well.
0: Oh yeah, I can't do it without voices. It sounds weird if you do it in English. But I'm always terrified to do it in front of a Kentuckian. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: know it's one of those yeah. things that sounds... Um, really uh simple to say but the because obviously you're such a skilled writer jojo but the characters in this were just brilliant and they change in a really um, believable way throughout the book as well oh, which i don't think is always that easy to achieve um, was there one particular character that you enjoyed sitting with more than others
0: yeah, Marjorie. I mean, for me, character is everything. Mm-hmm. Everything I write comes from character. And before I start writing, I always do a full history of who they are, where they've come from, mostly stuff that I won't use in the actual book. Mm-hmm. But over the books that I've written, I've found that if you don't know your character well enough before you start, then you don't get the proper kind of impact when they meet other people. It, it just becomes a bit yeah. Um And Marjorie was one of those characters a bit like Will in Me Before You, who just fell into my lap, fully formed. And that's such a joy when it happens. I knew exactly who she was, how she would respond to things. She's basically the kind of kick-ass version of me if I was brave enough. You know, she's <laughs> immensely capable. she I wanted to write a book about a woman who just did stuff. It's not about her feelings. It's about or her appearance. She just gets stuff done. And, and she's brave and resourceful. And, and I... I suppose I think more and more as well about the kind of messages you send across, and I don't want to make that sound really worthy, mm. but for me as the mother of a young, I'll say a young woman now, it's really important that, because I know how I was affected and still am affected by fictional characters that I see on a screen or, or read in a book, I think it's important to see people who go, oh, man, I want to be like that. Yeah. You know, I, just, well, I could take a little element of that into my own life. And Marjorie, for me, is that person. She's, she's like me without the brakes on. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you get absolutely get the sense of that uh, when you're
1: reading it. And I also really like that, of course, you think carefully about what you want to put out in the world and the things you want yeah. to say. And, you know, from what you were saying earlier as well, so much of this resonates with things that are happening now. And, you know, yeah. yes, this is 1930s Kentucky, but the women are getting on with it and they're in some of them are in the most dire circumstances and having horrendous things happen to them often at the hands of men and often powerless to change it yet they're still fighting their fight and
0: and winning in many ways. Power is such an important word and I think it's at the root of so much of this book and it's it's at the root of what made me want to write it because especially if you look at what what's happening in the states the the thing that really alarms me more than anything else is the kind of negation of the idea of truth and facts mm. and the first thing that hit me when I read up about these librarians is that Roosevelt who was responsible for setting up the scheme that, that housed these women believed firmly in the importance of education and facts as a way of pushing back against uh political kind of nonsense and religious fundamentalism and he just think he thought without facts we are nothing yeah and so for me it was about it's 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 about women and armed with facts pushing Mm -hmm. back against fundamentalism of all sorts and 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 also doing it in a a way where they're never on competition with each other, which Mm -hmm. was another important thing for me. I get very tired of the trope that says two women in a book have to necessarily be in competition if they're roughly the same age and attractive. (laughs) No, These women look out for each other, which is my experience of female friendship is that I couldn't live without my female friends. They're just, you know, they're the kind of scaffolding under everything that Mm. I do. Um, So it was important to write about friendship and, and yeah all the themes turned out to be kind of scarily modern especially you know the rape of the landscape i mean you look at what's going on in brazil now you look at what's going on in in america with corporations just you know people trying to get to antarctica and and mine that it's it's all the same stuff history just repeats itself it does there was actually there was a
1: a quote i wanted to pull out about that which really struck me when i was reading it which is you wrote that um Around the settlements, the taste of coal dust hung in the air with an ever-present sense of foreboding, explosions covering the valley with a grey filter. Even Charlie balked at it. A certain kind of man looked at God's own land, she thought, as she drew closer. And instead of beauty and wonder, all he saw was dollar signs. And I just thought
0: that (laughs) that summed it up. It was ever thus. Yeah. Yeah. And it's still going on. You look at, you know, Bolsonaro and Brazil and, Mm -hmm. and what's happening to the Amazon rainforest. And... There's a certain kind of person who who only ever sees dollar signs. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. The other thing that's um, for me took kind on of a fresh context since we, you and I last spoke about this book, Jojo, is is the element of race within yeah, the story.
0: Gosh, wow, uh, yeah. I mean, you can't really write. About, um, Kentucky was and still is to some extent a very white state, although it was also responsible for, uh, the first black library, um, or, or the colored library as it was known then. Uh, which is an extraordinary thing because uh, under the Jim Crow laws, uh, black people were not allowed to use the same libraries as white people. Mm. They're not allowed to go in and borrow books. I mean, the, the the level of structural inequality was kind of extraordinary. Um, and I, you know, this is a hot topic for many, many reasons at the moment. And I think as a, a white person, you have to be very careful what you do when you write about a black character, because, you know, there are all sorts of controversies and all sorts of opinions. And Mm. all I can say is that I knew when I wanted to, I wanted a black librarian and and I was so overjoyed when I found out that Louisville had this, you know, the first library in the States to do this. But also I didn't want her to be in an inferior position. You know, the, the, the position for most black women at that time would have been one of servitude in that area. And I didn't, I wanted them all to exist on the same level. So discovering the existence of that library gave me a, a, a way of doing that. And in fact, she is the actual grown up in the whole story. Yeah. She's the kind of moral center of the book. And she's also the person who she gets stuff done to an extraordinary degree. She's the organizer and the, the brain and the kind of the wise, wisest of them all. She's, she's also slightly older than the others. Uh, but I wanted her to exist on an equal footing. And also to show that as with all communities, there were people who weren't racist, you know, there were people yeah. who did just view everybody as, you know, human beings and treat them just the same. So um, it, it's always a bit nerve wracking now at the moment because we live in very febrile times as far as opinions go. And I'm, I'm grateful that of all the many things that people get upset about, that 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 seems to have been well received. But, you know, it's a sign of the times. I did give it to um, two friends of mine who are black because i wanted to make sure i hadn't made any kind of blind errors or done anything mm. that because it's too easy you know we yeah yeah
2: it was interesting natalie what dorothy coombson told us wasn't it on monday we spoke to dorothy Coomson. Yeah, she's been very vocal she, about
0: what she's experienced in in the publishing industry yeah yeah
2: and she said that she gets frustrated when when white people say i don't see color because she said i see color yeah she didn't no. we have so, so that's of
0: not seeing color
2: yeah. yeah and she's saying that that's not the right approach either yeah
0: no and this is this is why we're all learning at the moment i feel like we're all on a, all on a really steep learning curve and some of us are going to get it wrong and if we're lucky we'll be forgiven for that and it's just yeah you just have to try and listen and and understand that the world is constantly shifting i mean i sorry small example but i remember reading a couple of years ago i say i get sent a lot of books and <laughs> i remember slightly off topic, but I remember reading the kind of opening couple of pages, and and it was written by a a male television writer, it was a novel, and and he wrote, uh, he looked at his wife, who was 36, but still quite attractive. (laughs) 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 And it was so much through the prism of this guy, he couldn't understand like to him it was astonishing that a 36 year old woman might be still attractive can you imagine um, but it, yeah but it, and and there was like kind of mid 40s or something going are you kidding me yeah but but that's what i mean like you read stuff through your own prism, which is what do you mean i'm not attractive i'm past 36 mm. to him who obviously thought he was being He, was, he probably thought he was being quite generous yeah <laughs> yeah but we uh, I, I can't remember who it was, but somebody once wrote that when you write a book, ninety-five percent it's like a um, one of those uh, sand timers. Like ninety-five percent mm. of it is what the reader puts into it, and you're you're really the five percent, what you put out there. Mm. And so we never know how stuff is going to affect people or be interpreted, or which bits are going to resonate um and so yeah I guess all you can do is keep doing your due diligence try and be an ally try and be try and get it right and accept that sometimes you will get it wrong and hope that you have the strength and grace to listen and also I grew up in a kind of Benny Hill era of things where anything went frankly you look at some of the things we were supposed to find funny then and and it's a bit weird and you wonder how much of this has kind of been absorbed by osmosis maybe i'm less
2: i have to say that that terrifies me as a parent now of young boys uh, i'm constantly thinking what are my wife and i doing that in 15 to 20 years time they're going to be saying can't believe mom and dad did this or told us to do that that
0: we're going to pay for a lot of therapy whatever (laughs) we're going to get it wrong yeah you can't help it
1: yeah But again, I think that comes back to one of the big themes you were saying about the book, which stuck out for me as well, was education and the importance of broadening your horizons through, often through reading, which is what uh, I think people are sometimes still reluctant to do, or I know this is an obvious parallel, but when I was reading it, I just kept thinking of somebody like uh, President Trump, who seems to uh, trade off ignorance and and use that as a power tool. and, And I just, well, obviously that's a whole nother conversation, but you know, you you say very clearly in the book that there is, you have those two opposing sides of people saying, hang on a minute, we've got these women in the place where we're quite happy with them from the male perspective. We don't want to fill their brains with difficult things because they know that as soon as you get educated, you're going to fight back and want to create change.
0: And you get more curious. Yeah. Curiosity is very powerful. And, and you know, I think one of the characters says, uh, you know, a, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, mm. especially in the hands of a kind of 13-year-old girl. And, and one, of the, one of the issues, for example, in rural Kentucky was uh, strip mining, where pe- householders were encouraged to sign away the rights to the land under their houses for money. And because they didn't understand the contracts and they didn't understand the language, They would do it, and then find that they might actually own the house, but the land on on which the house sat was now going to be stripped away. So it it left them with nothing. And you educate someone, and you teach them to read, and you teach them the basic, you know, basics of not contract law, but a basic Mm. understanding of what they're signing away. And then they're going to push back and go, "I'm not signing that." And and that's that's the difference between literacy and illiteracy, isn't it? It's just uh, its power.
2: Right, allow me to lighten the tone a little bit and ask you to explain the significance the significance of the blue book
0: oh okay. well the blue book is a real thing the blue book is a book by dr mary stopes called married love which uh came out the, in the early part of the last century and changed the world um it was basically a book that spoke in kind of revolutionary terms about female desire, about biology, about men and women. And uh, and it was just basically an attempt to increase communication between men and women about what happens in the marital bed. And some of it is couched in incredibly flowery and slightly strange terms, but some of it is very basic. And she... She pinpointed, for example, the hormonal differences in women's desire. Like, you know, not to put too fine a point, when in the month it's likely to happen, mate. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And but so which I would say, people, still a lot of people aren't aren't don't know about that. Well, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so many people were horrified as well that you know it was the language was blunt, you know, and and people didn't talk about that kind of thing. So it was banned in the states for a while. But in my book, um, the book takes on a uh, significance as a hidden library book that gets passed around in secret but what it does is give a lot of women and some men a lot of happiness because they gain a greater understanding of, of sexuality and biology and and you know one of the great things that not great as in good but the huge things that kept women in the home was being pregnant non-stop yeah. uh, so once you understand that there are certain times of the month that you're not going to get pregnant life becomes a little bit easier um but it's also about pleasure and and what i didn't want to show that th- this is all about women's oppression there is a, a chapter in the book where all the men folk whose women have been reading this book are suddenly a lot more cheerful at work yeah um, yeah i wanted to show that knowledge benefits everybody It does. but it's interesting what you were saying you know about how
1: relevant so much of this still Mm. seems and also how much the reader brings to it so for example um there's a point uh I don't want to kind of spoil anything but when when talking about pregnancy in particular and another character another female character refers to another woman who gets pregnant um oh well that's it then you won't you'll be staying home now and and the other one's like well No, why why would I Uh, but I remember when I was pregnant with my first child so what was that 12 years ago 11 years ago Mm -hmm. and where I was working at the time having the conversation about oh I'm pregnant and my boss at the time then said the same thing it's like oh well you know have a think about what you want to do or if you want to come back and I was like what why would I not want to come back to work I'm having a baby I'm not (laughs) I'm not like changing my brain and what I want to do in my career. Um, so those things, I think, still felt so. They just
0: didn't get talked about as much as I think they, they should still, even, in 2020. Yes, and as you said, the level of ignorance about biology is kind mm. of astonishing, but it's why... All this stuff is important. We have these endless arguments still about sex education in schools and where, where it should come from and who decides what gets taught and whether we should talk as much about feelings as biology. You know, all that stuff is still coming up today, albeit in slightly varying forms. Yeah.
2: The Giver of Stars, the title of the book, we should explain where that comes from.
0: Yeah, it's from a very lovely poem um, by a woman called, uh, I think it's Amy Rowell. God, you'll have to...
2: Amy Lowell. Lowell, thank you, not
0: Rowell. Yes, thank you very much. (laughs) Um, And she, I think, was a, a closeted lesbian at a time when you couldn't really be a lesbian. And she wrote this beautiful, sensual poem called The Giver of Stars, uh where nothing is said and yet everything is said it's it's um it's just a lovely two verse poem about love and sensuality but it's it's couched in very kind of oblique terms and it it it's occurs in the book at quite a key moment and changes alice's thoughts about a lot of things and that's why it was important but then also it it speaks to the fireflies that we were discussing Mm. So, yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's
2: really sweet. And if you haven't d- discovered it, then you need to discover it. In fact, you need to discover this book as well for, for the same reason. The other thing that I know um, we both wanted to touch on was your use of the quotes yeah. throughout this book. Mm. And obviously, when you and I last spoke, I think I talked to you about the, the little women quote yeah. on marriage that you've got from May Mayolka. And then, of course, that film came out.
0: Yes, yes. And did kind of huge business as well. Yeah, Um, yeah, the quotes, uh, there are quotes at the beginning of nearly all the chapters uh, taken from real newspapers or magazines or books of that era. Um, and each refers to something that happens in the book, but it partly stems from the fact that I'm a huge researcher. One of my favorite things is, you know, with this book, for example, I went through eBay and I bought up loads and loads of old farming magazines and women's home companion and American magazines that, that were published in those months in which i'm i'm writing about because what you get from that is a sense of the preoccupations of the day you get the language you get the the letters and the bad jokes and the, the terrible racism i mean all this stuff is in these in these pages and most of it goes into the book but sometimes there are just little snippets that i can't bear to lose. So there's been a couple of books. Um, I also did a book many years ago called The Ship of Brides, where I did a lot of research on war brides coming from Australia in nineteen forty six. And I did the same with that. I'd spent hours and hours in the British newspaper library compiling, you know, old magazines and letters mm-hmm. and um and using them. Because I, I think it helps immerse you in the era as well I think well. it does. And I think also if you then want to read up more. So there
1: was there were lots that I've kind of noted down. So there was um I wrote it down, there was a a quote from a a farm journal by Della T. Lutz, or Lutz. Oh, about you can't eat a day old pie. yes. Yeah, and I I really want to go back and like, I see she's written loads of sort of cooking and home memoirs from like the 1920s and 30s. And I love that kind of stuff, just getting a sense of of what their daily experience, domestic life was like. So I'm I'm actually gonna buy one of her books as well. Yeah,
0: that was quite a shock to me because one of the Della T. Lutz talks about the fact that, you would never eat a pie that wasn't baked on the day, Mm. you know, what kind of a housekeeper were you? It was disgusting. (laughs) She wouldn't want to look in my fridge. I've got things there from 1982. And
1: we should talk as well about uh, film and TV adaptations, which have obviously happened to you a lot of your work already, but um, in acknowledgments for this one, uh, The Giver of Stars is already being developed, is it? You've got old Parker who directed Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, on board for this one.
0: Um, yeah well it's all up in the air at the moment uh because you know there's lots of covid has had a huge effect in hollywood and everything's slightly we don't know what's in production what's not but yes the the rights were bought by universal and uh keeping my fingers crossed that it Mm. will happen but i you know i've been in film long enough to know that it's all i don't know it's a it's a a uh, a lottery basically um like but card, how far right?
2: had it got then jojo how far had it got how far had it got before no, we've, COVID got,
0: we've got two drafts of a script yeah so um i i haven't really been in touch much with the studio since lockdown began so i don't know i mean i think la is in possibly a worse position than we are yeah That's <laughs> yeah. saying something Cheers. um but yeah there's there's a, a few of my books in production at the moment we just Finished filming The Last Letter From My Lover, which hopefully will be out later this year or very early next year. That looks great. I've seen the early cut of that, so I'm quite excited about that. So who's in that? Um, uh, Shailene Woodley, who's in Big Little Lies, yeah. and um, uh, Callum Turner, who is a sort of TV actor, but he was also in the latest, um, Emma. I mm-hmm, think, mm-hmm. uh, he's great. And Felicity Jones, who you, you know, fantastic English actress, who you will know from things like, um, the theory of everything. Yeah. And, oh, she's, yeah, she's wonderful. So I feel like, uh, oh, and, and, um, Rizwan Naban, who was in Informer. I don't know. Yeah. Informer was, a was such a good show. Yeah. And he has the most extraordinary yeah. face. Yeah. Eyes. You just can't take your eyes no, off him. So, incredible yeah, he, performance he as well. So, Fingers crossed it will, I don't know, I hope my, I made my daughter watch it with me and she's a pretty tough judge and she absolutely loved it. And if you like, it, this one's set in the 60s mm-hmm. and the modern day, so if you like those sort of outfits, one of the things my daughter just loved was the the clothes and the era and it was, yeah, it's, it's beautifully shot, so I'm quite excited about that. And then I've got a couple of others that are doing their usual planes circling at Heathrow, thing yeah. <laughs> also, it happens. yeah
2: can you believe that we've nearly done an entire episode of a podcast and not mentioned Lou clark
0: well, <laughs> well yes because i have revisited her you have I in lockdown yeah um so having sworn i would never do any more Lou clark's after the third book still me uh and I have to credit my publishers, We were talk, I was talking to them during lockdown and like many writers I had no writing mojo, you know, you'd think it would be the perfect time to get no. your head down. But like many people, my head was just scrambled, I just, three meals a day was pretty much all I could handle. Um, and one of the women at Penguin said, "This you, you might really hate the idea of this, but have you ever thought of visit, revisiting Lou for a short story? And as soon as I said the words Lou in lockdown, I knew exactly what I would do with her. And because it, and it was like revisiting old friends. It took me about three weeks. The the story that was meant to be 2000 words ended up at eight and a half thousand words because I had (laughs) so much fun. And we put it out for free because I just felt at that time, people were so low and struggling. And I, I knew that my appetite in terms of culture was kind of limited to rom-coms and things that made me feel a little bit better i didn't want to read anything Mm -hmm. covid related i didn't want to see anything grim i just needed to know that on the other side of this there might be still a world that i recognized and could smile at and and lou is such a perfect every woman as well in terms of how people respond to her that so i knew what i wanted to do and and actually it was it was lovely and it was also a lovely exercise for me because I hadn't written apart from scripts which is a very different discipline to books I hadn't written since September the previous year and so to to have to kind of exercise that muscle again but do it with characters that I knew and loved was such a pleasure and I love revisiting her family. They just make me laugh so much. If it's okay to laugh at your own jokes. Uh, and it was always yeah. really lovely. Happy did it for years. <laughs> yeah, that's because you're a dad. Uh, <laughs> the, the responses I got back from people after we put that out just made, it was a real lift for me as well because you realize that sometimes if you're lucky enough you create a character that can make a little difference to somebody's life. And the number of people who'd had a bad day and just said, you don't know how much I needed this or this articulates how I feel or thank you know they just they were happy to see her
2: and I Jojo yeah. I, I need it in my life and I'm going to confess to you that that's passed me by how do <gasps> I get hold of it
0: um it's on the penguin website or I'll just right. ping you a copy um I think it's on my twitter feed as well yeah. uh, if you if you scroll back to I think it's about a month ago is it right. ago? something like yeah. that but uh, I haven't tweeted much so you should be able to find it without having to plow through too much stuff yeah
2: well Um, definitely did you read it now um
0: i've
1: started to read it but i haven't finished it because then i wanted to get into the giver of stars but i was well aware that it was there and happening and happily sitting for something like as you say if you're having a bad day and trust me i've had many in lockdown that's that's where i'm gonna go um and but because you you wrote that and i know that it's a character that you said you weren't particularly going to revisit has it opened up whole other story avenues that you're you're tempted by now for her yeah
0: no, I, I, I think this was a really particular set of circumstances. In, you know, I never want people to get bored of her and mm. I didn't worry about it with this because I felt that she could accurately convey what a lot of people were feeling about lockdown from everything to do with the day clap to, you know, the isolation, to the weird mood swings, to being stuck with your family in a very, you know, because li- they live in a tiny mm-hmm. house and, and also being separated from her Partner uh, who was many miles away, and like lots of people have been separated from their partners, so um, that that all made it feel very easy. And I didn't. I, I don't want pe- this is going to sound a bit weird. I don't want people for, to feel that I'm exploiting her. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because it, that character has so much goodwill, and what I knew about writing that story because I was giving it away for free. Nobody was going to say that because it was actually, it was me just trying to put something nice out there rather than ask for money. You know, mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. Um, you know, on a few occasions money was sort of broached among publishers and agents and stuff. We all felt that it wasn't appropriate in this case, especially when people are suffering. This yeah. was a time to just,
2: yeah. Well, plenty of writers have retu- returning characters, mm-hmm. don't they? And I don't think people accuse them of exploiting those characters. What, why did you feel that way about Lou?
0: I don't know. I just, uh, I suppose because it was never intended to be a a series of books when I wrote the first one. When people raised an eyebrow when I wrote the second one, there were a number of people who were like, why are you you going back, especially after the ending of the first, Mm -hmm. shall I say? Um, but I knew once I wanted to write the second one, which was really to explore the notion of what happens after an event like that, which as an ex-journalist, I was really interested in the after, you know, what happens to, to the, the minor characters in a new story after the attention goes away. Um, but then as soon as I knew I wanted to write two, I knew I wanted to bring it back up and do three. So I, I, from the moment I knew it was going to be more than one, I knew it had to be three and I've never pictured it as more than three. And it was only when the lockdown thing occurred and i visualized it immediately which for me is always a really good sign if you know immediately the voice and the the setting you're halfway there i would have had to write that um but i don't i don't feel a compelling need i mean there is an event at the end of that story which i'm not going to mention because yeah, I, don't know I don't know what that is yeah <laughs> which could potentially lead to more books but at the moment also i just I don't know, I I loved going back to her, but I I don't feel a desperate need to write another whole book about her. I I love exploring different genres and I think that the stories that are at the front of my head right now are quite different ones.
2: So what are you writing now, Jojo? What is at the forefront of your mind?
0: Well, I was taking a year off from books. Um, You met me again at a time when I was pretty shredded from the demands of kind of running around. And I, I think we did a couple of events across the UK. We did England and Scotland, I think.
2: That's right. Yeah, um, and then you went straight off went straight with up, the lovely yeah, Siona to America.
0: America did, well, with your did makeup exactly Across America, and then went from America straight to Germany. And by the time I finished Germany, I was kind of on the floor. And then I did a European tour with Lee Child and uh, Ken Follett and Kate Moss to sort of help promote the arts post-Brexit, which was lovely but also quite full-on. And so this year was going to be a kind of year of consolidation for me. I, I'm not. I'm a bit of a workaholic, and it was quite strange. And then lockdown happened. So all my sort of travel plans and my (laughs) things that I was looking forward to have, like most people just disappeared. Uh, so I got to about, you know, Lou Clark time and thought actually I'm better off working. So now I'm, but I'm not working on books. I'm working on film scripts at the moment. Um, I'm doing a rewrite of a, a, an original film that I wrote for new line cinema and, I'm also talking to Netflix about a possible series of something that I've done and I'm possibly doing a rewrite of something for another studio, which I'm waiting to hear about, but it's, I just, I like working. I just, I really love what I do. And, and I, I've no, you know, like many people I've really struggled in lockdown. It's been, quite the mental test I think as much as anything most of us have have had to dig deep for reserves that we possibly didn't know we had and the level if you're kind of I think if you're a writer as well you're so conscious of everybody else's feelings as well you have to have a layer of skin missing to do the thing well Mm. but that means that you know when you feel the global levels of pain and anxiety and suffering it's very tiring and wearing and I mean, obviously not as tiring as working in the front line of the NHS, but, you know, we've all been wrestling with our own things. Mm, uh, I completely mm. forgot where I was going with this. Uh, <laughs> but no, what I worked out was as soon as I started working again, I felt level again. Mm-hmm. Right. I just, I'm, Interesting. A, I'm a pit pony. I need to be chugging away. Um, yeah, I just, it makes me feel happy. I just like the act of creation. I like the process. So, yeah, it's, it's been lovely getting back to it I feel like I've got myself back oh that's really cool yeah I, I, oh, I find the same big, thing no, well it?
1: no I, I uh, <laughs> can fully empathize with that because similarly yes, I work too. way too yeah. much and I've spent most well I've spent all of lockdown working harder than I I than I seem to have done before um but-
2: prior to this interview Jojo Natalie and I were on the phone <laughs> yeah. saying we need to scale it down
1: yeah. really yeah. Phil was like, "How are you today?" And I'm like, "I'm really frazzled. My brain hurts. I was working until about eleven o'clock last night. But then, if I'm not working, my I can't trust my brain with the yes. thoughts that come in. And then, as yeah. you say, the
0: just the global pain that's going on. And yeah. Well, I I, I did I did a lot of running in lockdown, mm-hmm. which has been interesting. I mean, my poor dogs have legs like nubs now because <laughs> <they've> been... <laughs> walked in there. But I've also managed my first uh, five. Kilometer run that I finally mastered the 5k, um, except that I was sort of a little too pleased with myself. And Sophie Rayworth, the the news presenter, who is uh, a kind of keen marathon runner, decided she was going to make me run with her the other (laughs) morning, you know, socially distanced, of course. And oh my God, (laughs) she made me sprint the last bit as well. We did 6k. I was nearly throwing up by the end of it. And she just doesn't even break her sweat. So I figured that, you know, I might need another lockdown just to kind of build up to some other level. But I, like most people, I've also eaten way too much during lockdown. So I have to run to cope with all the cake consumption. Yeah. Cake is good. I'm making an
1: apple strudel today. <gasps> oh, gosh, well yeah. done you. Yeah, that's on my agenda.
2: All around tonight. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: Let's get some book yeah. recommendations, Jojo.
0: Okay. Well, uh, The book that has stuck with me now for a year, which I recommend to everybody, I push on people, is Lisa Taddeo's Three Women. Um, Some books you just can't quite leave behind and that's one for me and it's a a sort of journalistic, it's non-fiction which is rare for me and it's a journalistic deep dive into the desires of three women and how they're shaped by the world around them and, and the relationships they're in. And it's a beautiful, intricate shocking um humane piece of writing and it makes you rethink as a woman kind of the experiences you've had as you've as you've grown she's just a brilliant journalist um
2: so lisa Tadio, that's taddeo that's you know, yes, t-a-double-d-e-o three women. three
0: women um and i'm gonna give you an odd non-fiction one which is uh I'm not a self helpy person at all, but like a lot of people, I've had to kind of work what gets you through um, this last three, four months. And there's a book by a woman who, who used to be a kind of standard American housewife called, uh, but is now a Buddhist monk called Pima Chodron. And it's called When Things Fall Apart. And apparently it was a huge bestseller many years ago in America, but I didn't know this. And it's basically about coping when everything falls apart around you and, and how you have to change and reframe the way you look at the world in order to to stay level really and it's it's not very self helpy it's very beautiful and simple and um the thing that I shouldn't admit to but I'm about to is that I listen to a lot of audiobooks because like many people I've struggled with the act of actually reading during lockdown mm-hmm. my brain has felt a bit fragmented whereas if I'm running or walking but the, the the unexpected skill I've learned during lockdown is not baking bread or, um, you know, banana bread. It's sleeping, which is something I very rarely did in my old life. I was lucky to get four or five hours a night. Now I can sleep for England, but one of the things that I do is I put on Pima Chodron in the background, (laughs) my Audible, and then I listen to her voice. And I I like to think that I'm absorbing all this stuff by osmosis, but audiobooks have turned out to be my insomniac's best friend. Because there are certain books now that I've become Pavlovian. If I listen to them for two minutes, I'm... (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> um, and I just set the sleep timer to turn off after an hour and I'm I'm away. And I shouldn't be saying that as a writer because I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I'm gonna say it's about the delivery of the book rather exactly. than
2: yeah, yeah, and about feeling relaxed. Yeah.
0: And the only other thing I will say is Lisa Jewell's new one, which is called The Invisible Girl. Uh, and I think that's out very, very shortly in this country. I got an advanced copy and she writes... It's works. out in
2: the end of August. Yeah. Is it the, oh. And we know that because we've already recorded her edition. Yeah. Oh,
0: we both you? read that one and as well. Yeah. 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 I couldn't yeah. put it down. I ripped through yeah. it. I think there's nobody who writes better about modern London and nobody who writes sort of better North London characters uh, and she's a very humane writer, but she, you can never tell where her stories are going. I just think she's got better and better. And, you know, full disclosure, she's a friend of mine, but I have plenty of friends who write books who I wouldn't recommend. <laughs> uh, awkwardly. Uh, I'm not going to say who they are, but, you know, the, Lisa, I will read anything that she writes because I, I think she's brilliant. And I think this new one is my favourite of hers. And I think I read it in in two days like literally kind of not wanting to go and do jobs because I I wanted to work out what happened and I think she's great
1: how good is your poker face if somebody says oh did you read that
0: thing (laughs) I've been told I have the worst poker face in this I cannot hide my feelings (laughs) at all um I I think I am and then somebody says to me well god don't you know don't try and hide your feelings (laughs) (laughs) it really was just yeah
1: yeah. Um, and just on book recommendations as well, just because I'm curious mm. and you obviously read a lot. Is there a book that you've reread the most sort of over your lifetime, I suppose, the one that you always kind of keep picking up and going back to?
0: Yeah. And it's National Velvet oh. by Enid Bagnold, which most people know from the film, mm. which was uh, starring Elizabeth Taylor um, about, you know, it, it, it's a very sort of disney version of the book with the young woman who who dresses up as a boy and rides a horse that she won in a raffle to win the Grand National. But the book is a completely different beast. It's funny, it's sly, it's beautifully written, it tells truth about families, it tells truth about the press in a really modern way. It's just a really lovely story. And in terms of, you know, what we've just discussed about The Giver of Stars, it's also a book about a woman empowering another woman to achieve the impossible. And Mm -hmm. this is Albert Brown, the girl, the sickly kind of rather strange girl who wins this horse in a raffle and, and develops this kind of obsessive dream. Her mother once won the Channel and won 100 guineas, and it's her mother who gives her the money to do this thing. But her mother is a very unsentimental, un esque maternal character, which is quite unlike what you get in most of the fiction of those years, mm. when it was written in the 1930s. But it's so modern, this story, and I recommend it to so many people. And it's it's a lovely thing because I, I actually did a podcast all about National Velvet recently, <laughs> and when it went out, uh, the number of people who kind of messaged to say, "Oh, I love that book," and and Mrs. Brown, this this woman who swam the channel, is now in the film, she's a kind of lean, mean, you know, whatever. But in in the book, she's actually quite obese, and there's these amazing passages about Velvet having to tie her stays and the 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 corset cutting into the flesh and Mrs. Brown's discomfort with her own bulk but also her kind of steadfastness and and the way that she reacts to her family or doesn't react to her family is really unusual and she's a character who stays with you Um, but what I found over the years when I first read that book as a teenager I identified with Velvet Mm. and what's interesting is as you get older and you read the same book every few years you start to identify with other people and now it's Mrs. Brown I find a really compelling one like what do you do? if you have this slightly crazy daughter with her mad dreams mm. do you facilitate them but with the possible you know risks that come with that or or do you just squash them and encourage your children to lead a safe life it's, it's no, you've got, got a dream in... right yeah no well, you got to but but equally lot you know you look at lots of parents they're terrified of letting their kids go yeah it, you know because all they see is risk and and that was it's interesting how you can read the same book again and again and always get mm. something new out of it. And that also says to me that it is a really beautifully written multi-layered book because, you know, some books you reread 10 years later, and you go, what did I see in that? Yeah. What yeah was that about? I used to love that. And they, now it's, you know, a lot of books as we reread them with our new prism of wokeness, mm. they're just mm. completely off. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I haven't read National Velvet, but as a kid, I was obsessed with, the film of International, International Velvet,
0: Velvet yeah. which was the
1: Tatum O'Neill one with yeah. Anthony Hopkins in it
0: um, yeah. yeah which was I just love that film I remember watching it three times in one day with my sister <laughs> I remember it too yeah. and the, you know the, the boys chasing her with the motorbike yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly and yeah it's heartbreaking the romance not lived. stepdad yeah mm, yeah
1: very good very good oh, well, Jojo this has been an absolute pleasure thank you so much
0: <laughs> <laughs> thank you for having me it has been a lovely pleasure I've loved it
2: And that's why I love Jojo Moyes because she never ever disappoints. Did you enjoy that?
1: <laughs> yeah, I really did. I really did. It's that, you know, I I do think that it's I still feel like really lucky and privileged that we get to spend this amount of time chatting to authors about what they've written because it's I, I do generally think it's such a a brilliant art and yeah, it's it's just great, you know, and she's she's so fascinating and I loved all her stories and you know, her tales from the wilds of Kentucky. And the, I think the thing that stuck out for me the most from this episode was just how, and I don't know if this is good or bad really, probably a bit of both, how frighteningly true to life a story that is set almost 100 years ago oh, yeah. still resonates today, yeah. you know, with the treatment of women and just the treatment of people from different races and backgrounds. And, yeah, it's kind of frightening, um, but also really... I know, she's just It's just really smart.
2: My nan used to say, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And the older I get, mm. the more I think she was right. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think so.
2: I just, I um, so. specifically though about Jojo, having spent some time with her, I just think she's a remarkable woman. Yeah. And I don't mean that in any way condescending. I just think that if you're looking at uh, women who are capable of empowering and inspiring others, she's one. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
2: And the way that she's added variety to what she does. I mean, she had such success with Lou Clark. She could have just stayed mm-hmm. in that lane. Yeah. And hasn't... and there's even there's books prior to that that I haven't read of hers that sound like there's such a varied background you, you know you could pick say three of her books and say who wrote these and I think whoever was guessing would guess three different writers not what not the same one.
1: Oh, do you think yeah. See, because I I wonder likewise there's still loads in JoJo Moyes' back catalogue that I want to investigate as well but I also wonder if she sort of reached that yep. state where she is her own genre if you know what I mean. So just with the style of writing, even though she can jump around so many different topics and and themes, I think there's a certain tone to her books, which is quite distinctive.
2: Yeah, that's that's a good point. And there's a certain um, uplifting spirit to them as well, mm. isn't there? Which is yeah. what we all need at the moment.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: So listen, I've saved something back for you for the end of the episode. Have you? Yeah. Um, and I think you'll like this uh, because... Um, so my best mate who was the best man at our wedding he's not a massive reader Mm -hmm. by his own admission and he he said to me on the phone I wish I could find more time to read so what's your new podcast about so I said well it's about books (laughs) so he said well I'll give it a go and it was real you know
1: yeah he's doing it to support me
2: it's not because he's into it kind of thing Mm -hmm. anyway he phoned me yesterday he said um I really love the podcast. I really love listening to you and Natalie. And as a result of the first couple of episodes, um, I've gone back to the beginning of Michael Connolly and I've purchased Black Echo. Yay! And so um, I think it's only fair that you shout him out. So his Mike is his name. So just give him a shout.
1: All right. Cheers, Mike. I'm pleased that you are enjoying the podcast and that it's doing what we kind of hoped, which is bringing books that you may not think you like and um, to people who may not necessarily pick them up before and, and giving it a go. So I think that's, that's great. Let us know what you think of black echo.
2: Yeah. And you don't just have to know us to get a shout out on this podcast. If you'd like a mention, if you've, <laughs> if we inspired you somehow to go and buy a book that you wouldn't ordinarily have looked at bestsellerspodcast podcast at gmail.com bestsellers at gmail.com that's the email address and we'll see it there. And just to let you know that we're going to get a bit busier in the next couple of weeks. So you might find, some bonus episodes saying no more now, that Just saying it might get more than one a week, mightn't it?
1: I was going to say double week, but if you, that's kind of the same as saying you saying more than one a week,
2: yeah, yeah. But well, we're not saying when and we're not saying who, we're just saying you might get a few more extra episodes like of this yeah, exactly. So keep it here, wherever here is.